Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, two philosophical interviews. Rebecca Newberger-Goldstein tells us why philosophy won't go away in Plato at the Googleplex, and then Kenan Malik on a global history of ethics in the quest for a moral compass. Rebecca Newberger-Goldstein received her doctorate in philosophy from Princeton University. Her award-winning books include the novels The Mind-Body Problem, Properties of Light and 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, a work of fiction, plus non-fiction studies of Gödel and Spinoza. She has received a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, has been designated a Humanist of the Year and a Free Thoughts heroine, and is a Fellow of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences. Her latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. Rebecca, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's my pleasure. How would you describe this book? Because it's sort of a, it's not a straightforward philosophy book. There's a fictional element to it as well. So tell me how you would how you describe it. You know, I really don't know how to describe it. It's weird, is what it is. <laughs> and and I, I didn't immediately think of writing a book that would both be an exposition of mm-hmm. Plato and why the Greeks discovered philosophy and science and abstract mathematics and democracy and all of that, and, you know, trying to put Plato in the context of his society, coming up with a theory, you know. Okay, I, I had that. I had that in mind. But then, you know, to go ahead and to try to make the argument that philosophy is very much alive mm. in our day by bringing Plato forward and putting him in contemporary dialogues, that sort of, you know, kind of I thought of it and then I thought, oh, that's that would be very cool if somebody could pull it off, but I could never pull it off. You know, just and then I started playing around with it and slow, you know, mm. and it all kind of came together. But it is, a, in some sense, two very different books, but I think they hang together. Mm-hmm. Most definitely they do. And, well, the format of the book, which we'll, we'll talk about more later, sort of follows from the fact that you've chosen it to be about Plato, because it's in the style that he used to write. Um, but why Plato? Why did you choose Plato? Yes, and it's not because I think Plato had all the answers. I mean, <laughs> that, the man who never questioned whether slavery as an institution is wrong did not have all the answers, or, you know, the theory of forms and the kind of essentialism that that commits you mm-hmm. to, that, you know, we've moved way beyond Plato in terms of the answers he gave. But 
He really decreed philosophy as we still know it, in the sense that he really uncovered in all these different areas of human concern philosophical questions, you know, in language, you know, in mathematics, in religion, in epistemology, ethics, political theory, Mm -hmm. metaphysics, you know, the whole shebang, as if he raised up that whole continent, submerged continent, like the submerged continent of Atlantis, which is very... Which, of course, is is something he invented. Exactly, (laughs) their first allusion to that. And so that's a pretty amazing Hmm. talent, and I wanted to understand it, you know, and understand it in the context of where he came from. How important was it that he was an ancient Greek? Very mm-hmm. important. Well, he laid the foundations of philosophy as we know them now, but he certainly wasn't the first philosopher. He certainly so wasn't. what were they doing before Plato came yes. along and sorted it all out? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of them were what we would now characterize as proto-scientists. Mm-hmm. They were asking the kinds of questions that physicists and cosmologists and biologists answer now empirically, but they didn't have, you know, the notion of testing, of experiment. Mm-hmm. It was speculative. And, you know, and then a lot of them came up with amazing ideas. Democritus came up with the idea of the atom. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were formulating all sorts of hypotheses, but it was pure speculation, and you could see how the development of science made them that kind of philosophy obsolete. But mm-hmm. there, there, and you know, there are scientists now who think that all philosophy is obsolete. That the way that those first proto scientists went is the way that all philosophers will go. We can talk mm-hmm. about that later. But Socrates, at least in the way that Plato presents him, wasn't interested in those kind of proto scientific questions. He actually says, you know, he 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 was all excited when he heard that Anaximenes or was it Anaximander, one of those guys said that mind is the explanation for everything, but then it just turned out to be a kind of form of materialism. Mm-hmm. Socrates was interested in, you know, the question of how should we live our life? What is the life worth living? What, how do we define the virtues? And those kinds of questions, which indeed have remained philosophical questions. They haven't been overtaken by the empirical sciences. Mm-hmm. So Plato, I think, you know, he took that kind of peculiar question that Socrates was asking, and he then formulated this kind of peculiar question uh, that has to do has to do with our orient, orienting ourselves in the universe, what we're all about, that can't be empirically answered. And he formulated this in many different areas. And so in that sense... You know, I guess, you know, Socrates was obviously a huge influence on him. And it's not that Plato wasn't interested in formulating metaphysical theories of the universe either. Um, you know, he, he did go in for that kind of stuff as well. He did everything. Mm-hmm. You know, he really did everything. But yeah, I mean, you could sort of distinguish between the two kinds of questions, you know, what is... And they were asking that, what kind of universe are we in here? And then what matters? And Socrates seemed to be really focused on what matters. Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that matters in human life? But he was interested in all of it, um, in all of those, those questions. There's a famous quotation that appears repeatedly throughout this book, and in some ways this book is a, a rejoinder to, by Alfred North Whitehead, to paraphrase all subsequent philosophy after Plato. It's a footnote... And it's self-evidently ridiculous Ridiculous, that anybody has read any Descartes or Hume or Kant or or a hundred other people, a thousand other people. Exactly right. With a count Wittgenstein, yes. But but what did he actually mean by it? Mm, I think he meant, I like to think he meant, because he was a very good philosopher and who had a view of philosophy that was very, very sophisticated, I think. 
I like to think that he meant something like what I was just um, saying before, that Plato uncovered the nature of the philosophical question and the way to go about it, which is through, you know, argument, but very, very open. I mean, the kind of free-ranging. Plato's always talking about how philosophers are the are the ultimate free people, that they can, if what are the question, they undertake a question, and it leads to another question, and then another question, and be, before they can get back to the original mm-hmm. question, they will go there, they will go wherever it goes, but also free in the sense of free to revise one's opinion, and Plato does it repeatedly. That's why mm-hmm. I really actually like the man. There's so much to hate in Plato, <laughs> you know. Popper called him, you know, in, in the open society and its enemies, he's public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. Plato, and there is much to dislike in mm-hmm. him. But he revises his opinions. You see it over and over again. I believe he, you know, he, he formulates the theory of forms. He subjects it to rigorous criticism in the Parmenides, and then it disappears, really, in the Timaeus and the laws. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when there, something else takes its place as the key to the intelligibility of the universe mathematics, which had a huge effect on science, that idea. But that's what I really love. Even love, you know, that's a really terrific thing that he has these wonderful dialogues on romantic love, on erotic love. Is it a total waste of time? Should we sublimate all of that um, longing and energy to Mm -hmm. possess the beautiful from, you know, trying to possess the beautiful boy to possessing bigger and loftier beauty, you know, the beauty of mathematics, the beauty of the just laws. But then he writes this other, and then that's the symposium, you know, then he writes this other dial, the Phaedrus, and he kind of, and he reverses himself on that. You know, Socrates gives one speech saying, you know, oh, renounce the madness of love, renounce the mad lover. And then Socrates gives a second speech in which he says, no, no, he's offended the god, and he totally reverses himself. That is part of what it is to be a philosopher, mm-hmm. you know, to be open to revising your opinion. And I'm going to turn that last question on its head a bit and say, if we, you know, if we can agree that everything that followed after Plato is not a footnote to Plato. Why do we still bother with Plato? There were plenty of geniuses of the uh, of that yeah. ancient world, Galen or somebody springs to mind that, you know, their entire corpus of work is now obviously disregarded. Yeah, and what makes him so still relevant? It's, you know, it, it is, you have to recognise the extraordinary genius of somebody who formulated questions that still percolate mm-hmm. in our society. And, you know, they and, and their further iterations, you know, because, of course... We discover more and more philosophical problems, and as uh, you know, science develops, it throws off more philosophical problems for us to consider. But there's a kind of way in which he laid out that groundwork. I'll tell you the truth: to me and to many people, there is something about the vision of. Plato. It's not the details so much, but the vision of Plato of that, um, you know, call it the sublime braid. There's no word for sublime in ancient Greece. It's not like I'm... (laughs) But, you know, that truth and beauty and goodness are somehow entwined with each other. Mm -hmm. The kind of beauty he's talking about is mathematical beauty, and the kind of goodness is explanatory goodness, and also has a lot to do with mathematics, and that we are somehow, it's good for us to pursue uh, this vision of reality, and to Mm -hmm. the extent that we pursue it, you know, we get perspective, and we kind of get shaped up. We, in fact, really get 
almost shaped, he says, by reality itself, you know, by our appreciation for what, for objective truth. And there's, there's something still very appealing about that to many people, certainly to me. Mm-hmm. I, and it makes Plato, with all of his fascistic <laughs> aspects, um, somebody to take seriously, or, or that vision seriously. Mm-hmm. I'm Michael Brooks, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I'm going to return to that, the goodness idea yeah. that you just raised, the sublime braid concepts a little later on. Before we get there, what do we know about Plato the man? Mm. That's the other thing that's so intriguing. Mm-hmm. Precious little. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know he was an aristocrat. We know he you know, founded the academy <laughs> and all. But we know he fled... Athens after the death of Socrates, after the execution of Socrates. He think he fled because either out of disgust for his fellow Athenians or because um, he felt himself to be in some danger. We can certainly infer that uh, Socrates meant the world to him. But you know, he's, he's very elusive. He writes these dialogues and he's a very good dramatist. You know, we know a lot about the character of Socrates, Plato's character of Socrates, mm-hmm. and we know about Alcibiades and all that, you know, Partly from what, uh, you know, how Plato presents them, and he really based most, maybe all of the characters, in fact we think all of the characters on living people, mm-hmm. but because he's such a good dramatist, he's hidden, and mm-hmm. it's, so it's, it's hard to know too much about him, and I've always been intrigued by that, you know, I'm always intrigued by elusive characters. So that was another thing I was trying very hard to do, to immerse myself and to read those dialogues very differently than I ever read them as a, you know, as somebody who studies philosophy, looking for the arguments, looking for the fallacies, you know, that sort of thing. But to look for the places in which Plato is betraying himself, that is, you know, revealing some aspect of himself. And, um, and I felt like I, I did come closer to the man. And this is a you know ridiculously huge question, which we're going to be covering all the way through the all the way through the hour. So I mean, in general terms, what do we know of his philosophy? And it seems like that seems like a very silly question. Yes. There's a you know a huge pile of work that he did, twenty six dialogues yes. that he wrote that survive. They all survived. All 26... I mean, that that is his entire corpus survived. Nobody uh ever refers to... Unlike Aristotle, you know, nobody Mm -hmm. ever refers to a work that hasn't come down to us, which is interesting. So... We should know everything yes. he thought and everything he did. However, of course, one thing that we know now, one th- Plato is always quoted in this context when we're talking about, you know, the internet or something and how it's changing people's brains. You know, oh, Plato was suspicious of writing stuff down. You know, he never even believed that. Ha, ha, ha. How funny. But in some respects, it's true. He, he wrote about other people. He wrote about Socrates. Yes. He doesn't sit down directly. He was against the idea of sitting down directly and writing his own exactly. philosophy, wasn't he? Exactly right. And in the, uh, the Phaedrus, he says, you know, he, he, he says, writing is very feeble. I can't answer you back. Mm-hmm. Philosophy has to be this open, it has to be dialogue, it has to be a living conversation. Mm-hmm. If I stay in my own mind, those deep core intuitions, the very ones that need to be examined, because they're so deep down, if I don't expose them uh, to other points of view, I mean, and uh, really other points of view, and that's, you mm-hmm. know, that's uh, that's a that's a problem in philosophy, in academic philosophy, it's, you know, how widely are we exposing these things to people who pretty much have the same training as we do, but anyway... Mm-hmm. You know, if I if I do that, I'm, I'm not going to make any philosophical progress, and 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 so, 
you know, this living dialogue, the back and forth, the challenge, the clash, the, um, you know, and you know, we're, uh, philosophers are a very aggressive bunch, we're very belligerent. My, my former husband, who was a fairly aggressive mathematician, you know, when he used to come to philosophy seminars with me, he'd say, my God, I mean, the way you people go at each other. <laughs> but, you know, that is, that is, you know, and it's not supposed to be personal. It's not supposed to be an ego. I mean, ideally, right, it's not always like that, obviously. But, yeah, so, so he mistrusts writing. And then in the seventh letter, whether it's veridical or not, you know, sometimes people now think it, it probably... Some people think it's authentic. When I was a graduate student, nobody thought the seventh letter was authentic. But scholars now, many of them do argue it was authentic. And they, and most scholars agree that whoever wrote it, whether it was Plato or someone else, was very close to Plato. And so you can get a lot of information out of the, historic, of the historical Plato out of that. But he says there that he never committed his philosophy to writing. Mm-hmm. So that is... Amazing. So was Plato a Platonist? I mean, it sounds like a really dopey question, but it's a real question. So what do we mean? I was going to ask you that question <laughs> next. So what do we mean by Platonism? Yes. I mean, what most people mean by Platonism is a commitment to the existence of abstract entities. Mm-hmm. You know, so whether it's, you know, the forms, with, you know, or meanings, you know, that words are attached to these abstract things, meanings, or uh, the place where it comes up the most, where you hear it the most, is in philosophy of mathematics and foundations mm-hmm. of mathematics, you know, which basically asks the question, what are we doing when we're doing mathematics? Are we discovering objective truths, you know, or are we making it up as we go along? Is it a higher form of chess, mm-hmm. you know, and we're just stipulating rules and seeing the consequences of them. And to be a Platonist is to say we are discovering independent truths that are, you know, exist independently of the activities of mathematicians. Mm-hmm. And that is still a very viable view in philosophy of mathematics. The American Mathematical Association did a survey of professional mathematicians and found that something like 98% were Platonists, described themselves as, as mathematical Platonists. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can't remember if it was 95 or 98, I should, I should look it up. But Describe um, themselves in that term, I'm or not accidentally sure. describe yeah. themselves as, as Platonists. Yes, right. Yeah. Um, you know, Aristotle says that in the academy, and Aristotle attended the academy first as a student, and then he taught there before he founded his own lyceum, that the question was always being raised in the academy of the independent existence of of mathematical mm-hmm. objects but that it was never really resolved it was as is still the case right it's just, you know it's so you know it's not even clear that plato was a platonist in that sense but he certainly laid out that possibility and he asked the question so i want to even say that it's a, you know that it's an, a necessary doctrine of plato's that the abstract exists I, yeah, I'm very wary to pin any doctrine on Plato, except that objective reality exists, mm-hmm. and it exists in the way that it does because it's beautiful. It kind of its existence sort of bursts in there, it bursts into it. It's just too beautiful not to exist. And so the way to understand reality is to follow our intuitions of beauty, which towards the end of his life means mathematical beauty. And physicists still talk this way, you know. So the physicists also, you know, sort of follow this guide of, you know, mathematical mm-hmm. beauty is, is a key to reality. And that I think we can pin on Plato. And it's a good thing to pin on him. 
why did these 26 dialogues survive yeah, back from all that yeah. time? I mean, is it did they survive because Plato was the greatest, or do we now think he's the greatest because those ones survived? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> and both of those are possible. Supposedly, Aristotle wrote magnificent Mm -hmm. dialogues as well and they didn't survive Mm -hmm. and I don't know you know there was the burning of the library in Alexandria but you know maybe there was a a fervent Platonist who was scooping up the scrolls of Plato as as the library was burning I mean who knows what fortuitous event you know, explains this, but it is an interesting fact that no contempor- nobody ever refers to a writing of Plato that we don't have, and that's interesting. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and today I'm talking to Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein and we're talking about her book Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away. And Rebecca, I want to move on in the second part to look at sort of setting Plato aside, I guess, for a moment and looking at philosophy more generally. There's been a recent, or well, I say a recent argument, it's an argument that's been raging on for centuries, but um, has come to a head recently, um, specifically amongst physicists who were mentioned earlier. Um, I mentioned the Alfred North Whitehead quote, but a number of physicists, Stephen Hawking said it, uh, Lawrence Krauss recently as well, and this is generally in the context of philosophy of science, but basically this idea that philosophy is finished, science has basically done the, the heavy lifting of philosophy now, right. why do we still need philosophy? Right. Um, so... Well, first of all, just give us a, a brief sort of explanation of what we mean by philosophy of science, and then let's talk about yeah. why they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, and they, they're saying about everything, not just philosophy of science. Stephen Hawking, I think, particularly addressed philosophy of science, mm. but, but Lawrence Krauss and Stephen Weinberg, the uh, Nobel laureate, they've all ex- expressed, you know, that philosophy in general, you know, mm. is just, especially, you know, even now with the cognitive neuroscience developments telling us about how the mind works and eliminating notions of freedom and the self and personal agency, so it is claimed that uh, that these questions of moral philosophy and aesthetics, you know, there's neuroaesthetics, um, that those other questions, they're all being swallowed up. And that, you know, uh, Stephen Weinberg had said, you know, that you, if you just look at the thrust of history, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, first it was physics and then cosmology and biology and psychology and linguistics and artificial intelligence and as science marches, various parts of philosophy get incorporated mm-hmm. in, and so there's that that you can predict where the terminus is, and we're very close to it. You know, we're close to the end, and the end is an eye. What is wrong with that? Well, just in making the argument, they are using philosophy, you know, without realizing that they're using philosophy, and they're taking philosophical positions that are, you know, that that could be challenged, that are defeasible, that are, there are very, there are other ways of thinking about these things, and they're not even aware of the options. Stephen Hawking, for example, in in his last book, which is a wonderful book, 
but he gives his view of what it is that science is doing, and it's a kind of modeling. It's a, you know coming out of our minds without. And there's a long history. Certainly, it's it's kind of continuous with with mm-hmm. Kant's view. Uh, there's a long history of thinking that that is what science is doing, but he doesn't even make the philosophical argument mm-hmm. for that because. It's as if he's not aware of the different philosophical uh, interpretations of science. And science, it's, you know, and these interpretations, they are interpretations of science. You can all agree on the science and have vastly different interpretations of what we are doing when we do science. The same thing as with mathematics. All agree that proof is a great proof. It works. But what are we doing when we're doing this proof? When you're asking that question, you are going outside of the field itself. Not to speak of, you know, these other sorts of questions, like, you know, the questions about what matters, and, uh, you know, and uh, is there a self? If, if it doesn't appear on the neuronal level, does that mean it's eliminated, or does that mean that we're looking at the wrong level? Mm-hmm. That it makes, you know, just as if you try to answer all the questions of biology on the level of physics... That's the wrong level. It's going to be there are concepts that you need by a level of biology, or mm-hmm. but they're dependent on this lower level. But the concepts, the relevant concepts, mm-hmm. are on a different level. But in any case, all of these, what philosophy tries to do, I think, is to maximize our coherence to give us you know we have so many different intuitions uh often compartmentalized some of them are moral intuitions Mm -hmm. some of them are intuitions about space and time all sorts of intuitions and what philosophy tries to do is to bring these intuitions to the fore to uncover them which is very very slow process i mean we've been doing it and we continue to do it ever since Mm -hmm. plato and to examine them and then to see how compatible they are with each other given for example what relativity has taught us about space-time can our intuitions our old intuitions that can't thought structure the mind Mm -hmm. can they cohere with that the view of, of, of science you know probably not we have to reform them and then you know various Intuitions we have about our own lives, about the way in which we matter. Can we be committed to that without extending this mattering to other human beings? We've lived for a long time without doing that. You know, that the history of moral philosophy is a history of extending the uh, consequences of, of caring about our own lives, mm-hmm. you know, to, to people who had been slaves. Oh, oh gosh, they matter too. You know, it always takes an argument. It takes an argument to show up the inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. But that's what basically philosophy is trying to do, to make us as coherent as possible. And it's a huge struggle uh, we don't want to be coherent. We'd rather believe all these various things, especially self-serving things, mm-hmm. and especially the things that we that are kind of structured in our mind, the folk psychology, the folk physics, the folk mathematics. They often have to be corrected. So, yeah, it's the attempt to make us more coherent creatures. This book consists of, you look at Plato, you look at the you know his philosophy and him as a man, but then there is a series of platonic dialogues transported two and a half thousand years forward into the modern world and how we would sort of experience the modern world. And I, I mean, I've deliberately not delved into that too much because I'd really like people to, to read these and discover them for themselves as for the reason why we'll become clear, because you're a novelist as well as a philosopher. And I wanted to talk about how, 
how that side of you helped in the, yeah. in the creation yeah. of these things. Because they read, like, literature. They're not only just philosophical tracks, but they're laugh-out-loud funny and they're interesting. And the characters, although the characters serve purposes, the characters come to life. But we can talk about the general idea, you know, how... Is that what you set out to do, to create sort of literary creations as well as a philosophy textbook? Yeah, because he did it, didn't he? Mm. I mean, he really did, and I think he was trying to tell us something important by writing, as he did. You know, he wrote with reluctance, but he did write, fortunate. Mm-hmm. You know, fortunately, and he wrote a lot, and he wrote supremely well, and he used the dialogue with real characters. And one of the things that he's, I think, showing us is that, you know, what you believe philosophically comes out of your character Mm -hmm. Um, but it also in turn you know shapes your character there's this real reciprocal dynamic going on between character and philosophical point of view that's why it matters so much that we be deliberate and and put everything we've got into uh, philosophizing all of us all of us Mm -hmm. not just philosophers so here's this man. He did two things. He wrote these amazing dialogues, which are works of art. Mm-hmm. When that man lets himself go, like in the second speech of the Phaedrus in praise of the madness of love, I mean, it's ecstatic poetry. The man who banished the poets from his utopia in the Republic. But he did this other thing, too. He established the Academy. <laughs> and then he got together the greatest mathematicians of the Greek world to, you know, get to work on trying to understand the nature of reality using mathematics, optics and harmonics. And, you know, they studied it all there. I mean, that the Ptolemaic system came out of um, that Platonic work in the Academy. So these two different things. Now, I was trained in the Academy. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, when I started writing novels, my academic career took a huge hit. It's like, you know, especially since I was a woman in mm-hmm. philosophy of science, right, doing sort of the technical stuff. And then you go and you write a novel, and mm-hmm. it's funny, and it's sexy, and it's like real people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, uh, she's probably not so serious after all. You know, there was that sort of thing. But I have always been committed to these two types of writing that yeah you need the pounding out sometimes very obscure stuff that you know that you have the highly trained mind talking to the other highly trained mind yes you need that but you also need you know the writing that speaks to all of us and that's beautiful if possible but that's real real characters struggling with philosophical issues Mm -hmm. and changing their lives in the face of it changing their points of view you know, I believe in that. I just really believe, and I, and I believe that Plato, despite the fact that he established the Academy, believed in that too because he wrote dialogues. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, this was kind of the book, I guess, you know, even though it crept up on me because it seemed too audacious, in a way it's the book that I've been preparing myself to write by pursuing both, you know, academic philosophy, but also this other way of writing, literature. So really, it's music to my ears to hear you say that it reads like literature. Mm -hmm. No, it absolutely does. And as I said, some of it was just laugh out loud funny, which I really wasn't expecting. Just one final question to finish off with. You know, I said we haven't talked about the dialogues, but my my favourite of the dialogues was... um, Plato appearing on cable television with a, a sort of Bill O'Reilly type post called Roy McCoy. And so, as Roy McCoy himself might say, why should right-thinking Americans the world over be bothered with <laughs> philosophy? 
<laughs> yes, we're thinking Americans the world over, yes. So, uh, why should they be concerned with philosophy? Because just like the scientists who are denouncing philosophy are can't avoid philosophy. None of us can avoid it, you know, in just in deciding, you know, we're believing, acting creatures. We give reasons for our beliefs, we give reasons for our actions, we pursue our lives uh, with certain goals. We are making philosophical commitments just by doing that. And we should be, therefore, do it well. We should give, give thought to it. And most importantly, we should see what presuppositions we're, we're accepting without any argument. Um, see if we can argue them. See what the other possibilities are. Expose ourselves to the anti-arguments. We should try to be rational about this because... And this is a real Spinozist idea, but I think that Spinoza is the next step in this sort of Platonic, idealist view of what philosophy does, is to the extent that we give reasons and we're accountable to each other, then, you know, to that extent, we understand each other mm-hmm. and we, we can be more, you know, sympathy with each other. Um, and who, to whom should we be accountable? Well, to everybody who wants to be accountable to us. You know, I mean, this sort of everybody who's ready to pursue Mm -hmm. this project of accountability. That's who we have to be accountable for. And, you know, that's been a long struggle, you know, to to the impoverished, yes, to the colonialized, yes, to females, to children, even to animals, even even though they can't speak up for themselves, you know, that that is the next, you know, we have to be able to formulate reasons for our mm. opinions, our beliefs, our actions that would make sense to them as well, to everybody who as long as they're being reasonable, you know, not the ones who are ideologues and who simply who simply, you know, are not open to examining their reasons. Mm-hmm. And that's the Roy McCoys of this world. The Roy McCoys of this world. Lord help us. Yes. <laughs> I've been talking to Rebecca Goldstein and we've been talking about her book Plato at the Googleplex, Why Philosophy Won't Go Away, which is out now from Atlantic Books in the UK. So Rebecca, thank you so much for oh. taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, it's been such a pleasure. and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Kenan Malik is a writer, lecturer and broadcaster. He is a presenter of Analysis on BBC Radio 4 and a panellist on The Moral Maze. He has taught at universities in Britain, Europe, Australia and the USA, presenting many TV documentaries and writes regularly for newspapers across the world, including The New York Times, The Guardian and The Australian. His books include Man, Beast and Zombie, Strange Fruit and from Fatwa to Jihad, which was shortlisted for the 2010 Orwell Prize. His latest book is The Quest for a Moral Compass, 
a global history of ethics, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the main today. So, Kellen, thank you very much, or welcome back. To well, it's a pleasure it's been to be a while. back. The book is entitled The Quest for a Moral Compass, A Global History of Ethics. And so, obviously, definitions of morality and ethics are going to change as we go along through the interview. But let's start with a sort of baseline and talk about just the definition of what morality and ethics means. One reason for doing a history of morality is to show that our concepts, our notions, our definitions of morality changes over mm-hmm. time. And that what we imagine is morality today is very different from the way people thought of morality a thousand, two thousand years mm-hmm. ago. If you read Homer, for instance, you find a moral framework in that, but, mm-hmm. but not in the way we understand it now. Mm-hmm. And not in the way we understand it for two reasons. One, because morality in, say, Homer's time was something not actively reflected upon. It wasn't something that you talked about as morality. It was something that grew intuitively, Mm -hmm. that one grasped intuitively out of stories and myths, out of the tales that Mm -hmm. someone like Homer wrote, or actually that he talked about, because Mm -hmm. it was only after Homer that those works were written down on paper. Homer was a poet. Mm -hmm. Uh, He talked to people, and, and his stories were oral is part of an oral storytelling mm-hmm. tradition. And those those have been primarily stories of, of heroism, sort of, as you said, myths, but the, 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 they were like these great men to sort of model yourself after. That's right. And, and out, of, out of those stories came an understanding of what was right and wrong, how mm-hmm. one acted rightly and wrongly. Yeah. But it was a very different notion mm-hmm. from the way we understand it, because right and wrong in those days was as much about who you were... Yeah as what you did mm-hmm. uh, and what values you possessed. Mm-hmm. To be good was to be noble, and there were certain characters, traits that one had to mm-hmm. possess in order to, to be noble. Mm-hmm. Agamemnon is noble, mm-hmm. he's good because he's noble in certain traits, kingly traits. Yeah, even though he sacrificed his daughter. Indeed, but that's part and parcel of being kingly. Mm-hmm. So that is, it means, I mean, we still have both senses of the word noble now. Noble in someone who's, who's good, who behaves in a way that's expected of someone who will do heroic acts. But also in noble in just that you're an aristocrat, you're richer than everybody else, and therefore you're intrinsically more moral. That's what they thought then. Sure, well, know. that's right. That those who weren't aristocratic, that mm-hmm. those who weren't noble by birth, yeah. could not be morally good precisely because of their low birth. The quest of morality was a question mm-hmm. for those of noble birth. And to be noble was to act as befits your birth, to act in certain ways, mm-hmm. to perform one's duty. And that created a framework mm. for, for right and wrong. Sp- Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just a fundamental change comes with the shift from what we call the heroic society, mm-hmm. this kind of society described in Homer's works, the kind of society described in the great Indian tales, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana and so on. Mm-hmm. The shift from the heroic world to a more settled, productive 
developed world. And interestingly, it's a kind of shift that takes place across the globe yeah. around the same time, in a give or take a few centuries. And um, well, I was going to say that we, we do tend to, you know, looking from now, if we, again, if we just concentrate on, on the, the Greek world for the moment, we do sort of tend to look at ancient Greece as this homogenous thing. But the world of Homer and the world of Aristotle later on, who's sort of central to that, to that chain, are very different places. But one of the things that I guess they've got in common as well, which changes as we go on in the story, is the gods, the Greek gods. And the fact that they're, first of all, active in the lives of the Greeks. In a way, in the stories, in the myths, they intervene all the time in their lives. They're capricious, they're mischievous, and they're interfering. And at the same time, there's fate. There's this idea of fate as well, isn't there? That basically, we're not responsible for our own actions because it's already decreed in the stars. Well, not that we're not responsible for our actions. The notion of responsibility is very strong mm. in Greek philosophy. But that fate is also very strong. Yeah. And, and there is an ambiguous notion about what responsibility means. Mm-hmm. And so, on the one hand, we are fated to act in certain ways because of the gods. Mm. On the other hand, we're also responsible for our actions so that in uh, the Iliad, the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles Mm -hmm. is set up by the gods. And yet... Homer also sees the different characters of Agamemnon and Achilles as being part of their own responsibility. They're responsible for their actions, even though that quarrel and their actions, in, to, to a degree, have been set up by the gods themselves. Mm-hmm. And that twin way of looking at responsibility, if you like, runs right throughout Homer and, and, and well beyond Homer. That idea that the gods themselves are active in the lives of people as well and are always sort of getting in the way and interfering. How does the sense of morality that we get to when we're going to get on to talking about Aristotle in a moment, how does that develop with this sort of background of interventionist gods? Yes, it's important to recognise how different Greek gods are from Mm. the gods of monotheism, the way we think of God. Whether we're atheists or not, Mm -hmm. we still have a certain perception of God, uh, which is very different from the way that the the Greeks thought of gods. It's also important to recognise that the Greeks lived in a very religious society. Again, we we think of Greek society as the fount of rationalism. Mm. In fact, their whole world was shaped by gods Mm -hmm. and by the notion of fate. But their gods was very different, which is why their notion of reason was also Mm -hmm. very different that it became under monotheism. Because Greek gods, all the gods of the ancients, in fact, were not wise and judicious as the later gods of monotheism were. They were vain and capricious. Mm -hmm. They were vicious, deceitful, immoral. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were very human. And in many ways, you can think of Greek gods in this way, that the Greeks had, certainly Homer had, little concept of the inner world of the mind, of mm-hmm. conscience. You know, if, if you read the Iliad or, or, the, or the Odyssey, those kinds of words about inner belief, inner thought, inner action, that's so common the way mm-hmm. in, in our novels today, for instance, simply don't exist. Yeah. So rather than think about our inner world, that inner world was almost transposed into the world of the gods. Mm-hmm. So the, the world of the gods became a way of understanding human nature and human actions and human activities, and that's why the gods were immensely human Mm -hmm. but of course if they're human and they act as they do if they're unreliable what it meant was that greeks could not look to the gods to set notions of right and wrong Mm -hmm. precisely because they were unreliable that they acted on whim and that it required humans to reflect upon their condition to think about right and wrong 
to determine what is right and wrong according to reason. And so, in a sense, the Greeks carved out a space for morality, for human mm-hmm. dignity, out of this unpredictable, chaotic world created by the gods. And that was what was most significant, I think, about the Greeks and why they matter to us still so much, because mm-hmm. it was through them, and not simply the Greeks, I'm talking about the Greeks here, but you can yeah. make the same argument about the development of morality within Chinese thought, sure. for instance, and to a lesser extent within Indian thought around the same time, certainly in Chinese thought, where uh, the important transitions actually predate those mm-hmm. in Greece. But nevertheless, uh, let's talk about Greece, because that's yeah. what people are, are familiar with. They're important to us. Greek philosophy is important to us because, for the first time, philosophers started thinking about morality in reflective, rational terms. They started thinking from first principles about what is right and wrong. Mm -hmm. How should I act in a right fashion? Mm -hmm. What is it to act in a wrong fashion? And they did so because the gods could not do it for them. And that's important because later, with monotheism the whole relationship between humans, the divine, and Mm -hmm. morality changes enormously. So what the Greeks did was, in a sense, carve out a space for human dignity Mm -hmm. in the face of capricious, deceitful, immoral God. And therefore, they they developed a way of thinking about, reflecting about right and wrong, uh, which is still important to us today. And obviously there's numerous people that are around doing this, doing this, sitting around doing this thinking. But you've mentioned Socrates a, a couple of times. He's obviously a very central figure, and I've mentioned Aristotle. What was the major change? Like what? Well, first of all, I guess, what were the conditions? Because we're talking about it's, it's Athens, right? So Athens, it's a city-state. It's had a period of... The other thing we didn't really mention about the gods, and I guess, of course, this is true for people throughout the ages, really, but the other sort of aspect of the gods being tempestuous and capricious that's reflected in real life is, of course, their life was dangerous. There were civil wars, there was always the threat of hordes of people coming from the east, there was volcanoes and islands disappearing and things, and, you know, they lived in a, in a dangerous world as in well. A se- but... In a sense, that relationship they had with their gods mm. reflected their view of the world, which Mm -hmm. was a view that was chaotic, unpredictable, Mm -hmm. and yet inescapable. And that was how, in a sense, they saw the human condition too. Mm. But only humans had the the capacity and the need to, if you like, temper that chaos Mm -hmm. and disorder and to reflect upon it and through reflecting upon it, create some order within it. Mm -hmm. So what happens then to to settle things down, to enable those conditions to emerge when, well, I guess really people can sit around and think about this stuff? Well, that's a that's a long debated question to you know transition from a heroic to mm-hmm. a more productive, more settled age, mm-hmm. and and there are different historical arguments as, as, as to why those changes take place. There are different historical arguments as to why those changes take place in different places mm-hmm. on the globe. But I think we should just acknowledge that those changes did take place. Mm-hmm. And one of the major changes was that in Greece was that Athens became the central power within Greek society, Mm -hmm. in the Greek world. The reason Athens became so powerful was the success of Athens in defeating the Persians. Mm -hmm. This allowed them to create an empire, to, to develop wealth, and to be able to sponsor thinkers, writers, philosophers, sculptors, artists. You know, the golden age of, of Athens mm-hmm. is the gold, you know, the, one of the great golden ages of art and creativity, which matches the golden age in Islam a thousand years later of, of the Renaissance mm-hmm. and of um, the early 20th century, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, the 19th, early 20th century, the, the creativity of modernity. 
And, you know, the great philosophers, the great Greek philosophers, all come out of that period. Socrates, Plato, mm-hmm. Aristotle, and so on. There's then this idea that, and I think once we move on to talk about monotheism, we'll lose this again for a few centuries. This idea develops in Greece that, and again, we're talking about, you know, Athenian democracy, which is a thing that is a great idea, but is very different to our ideas of a democracy now. You know, the franchise is only available to a tiny percentage of, of the citizens, not to women, not to slaves, etc. I think it's important to recognise both why it's important mm. and why it is so different. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, as you say, very restricted. The notion of democracy was for a small group of men mm. who possess a certain amount of wealth and property and therefore the leisure to be democratic. And that's very different from the way we understand democracy. Yeah. But at the same time, the idea that law should be made not by a single person, mm-hmm. by a small group of oligarchs, but by a group of people, a larger group of people, was a huge, important step towards the kind of democracy that we understand today. Mm-hmm. And therefore, yes, it is very, very different, but it's also a very important step. But there's this idea that sort of develops out of it, which is what I was going to get to, this idea that, first of all, they can sit around and talk about, I keep describing it very flippantly, they can just sit around, but, you know, there were there are lyceums and academies and sitting around talking about the good life, how to live a good life, but also that on a wider level, our responsibility to each other, how we can live together as, as human beings. And I think that's really the sort of first time people start to sort of envisage the best ways for groups of people to live together, really. Well, morality is about... Mm-hmm how we relate to each Mm -hmm. other. That's fundamentally what we mean by morality. And all the different definitions, all at the heart, have different views about how human beings should relate to each other, Mm -hmm. and what our duties and obligations are to each other, what our rights are with respect to that, and so on. And the notion, you raised the notion of flourishing, Mm -hmm. and the notion of human flourishing was very important to, central to the Greek notion of morality. Mm -hmm. And again, it's important to recognise how new and different that was because the idea what was right and wrong, what was right behaviours, right actions, what were wrong behaviours, wrong actions, that these derive from a notion of of a certain form of life, of living. It's important to recognise how new and different and significant Mm -hmm. the notion of flourishing is. The idea that there are certain forms of behaviour, of action, under which all humans best flourish. Mm -hmm. We normally think about, or we often talk about, Greek notions of flourishing in terms of happiness, that what Aristotle talked about was uh, human happiness Mm -hmm. and and that morality was about developing uh, a kind of society's character, an an individual who were happy. In fact, happiness is a it's a very poor word for what they were talking about. Mm. They were talking about flourishing in, in mm. a broader sense, about the kinds of life that we should lead that best enable us to be human. I'm Jeff Dyer, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to, we'll skip over the reasons why, and we'll find ourselves in a world where now there is, in the West, you know, the Western world, Middle Eastern and the Western world, monotheism, you know, the three main monotheisms. And we're now in a world where God is separate. He's something else, although he's this being that's 
we want to obey. It's now a world of commandments and rules, and these are things that people have got to obey. And and supposedly, you know, in all of these monotheistic religions, God has said somehow through some vessel, these are the rules that you've got to follow. But the difference with the Greek world, he's he's away somewhere. There's this this world of God, which is various different notions of heaven, and not numerous gods living on a mountain and in, interacting with the people. So how does this? How does that change ideas? of morality it fundamentally changes ideas of morality but there are a complex set of Mm -hmm. changes that take place the first is as you say that the idea of a plethora of gods all collapse into Mm -hmm. the notion of a single god and again it's difficult to understand what a revolutionary step that Mm -hmm. was with a dozen gods a hundred gods one could if the rain wasn't they hadn't come if one's crops had failed, if one wasn't fertile, any problem one had, mm-hmm. one could ask a specific god to for help. Mm-hmm. With a single god, there's only one god, so you're putting an enormous amount mm-hmm. of trust in that one god to do all your work for you. And whereas the old gods were, uh, as we talked about, very human, they were deceitful, they were uh, capricious, they were unreliable and so on. The monotheistic gods, of all three monotheistic faiths, are gods who are wise, judicious, omnipotent, omniscient, Mm -hmm. and to whom one turns for every aspect of one's life, Mm -hmm. to, to understand every aspect of one's life. What that does is it both makes humans greater and lesser than Mm -hmm. they were before. It makes humans greater because humans are now seen as being made in God's image. Which is, I was going to raise that point, because, you know, we've talked about the Greek gods being all too human and the monotheistic gods being distant, but then, you know, humans are supposed to be raised in God's image. So how do, how do those two things work? Well, you know, if you ask an atheist, how do those two things fit in? I th- I th- I'm a bad person to ask that question. But the point is I'll that, ask a moral philosopher then. The point is that people both understood mm. God as occupying a a realm entirely distant and Mm -hmm. distinct from the human realm in a way that they hadn't seen gods before. But at the same time, because God was this omniscient, omnipotent force, Mm -hmm. responsible for all creation, responsible also for the creation of human beings Mm -hmm. and creating human beings in his own image. The idea, actually, is there even prior to monotheism. Mm-hmm. You can see it in, in you know, if, if you read Plato. Plato talks about the creator who created the, the universe. And a lot of Christianity draws from mm-hmm. the later Plato. But this idea that humans are created in the image of God is very important. Because what it suggests is that all humans are potentially equal mm-hmm. in a way that hadn't been there before. Mm-hmm. Now... That's there potentially in this notion of humans as being created in, in the image of God. In, in practice, it was never the case because sure. the Christian God created Christians in his image. The Jewish God created Jews in his image. Mm. The Islamic God created Muslims in his image. And therefore, there were huge debates well into modernity mm-hmm. about whether, for example, Christians debating whether um, non-Christians uh, were equal mm-hmm. or even possessed souls. Mm-hmm. So in practice... That notion of equality never developed until really the coming of modernity. But in principle, Mm -hmm. there was this idea that humans were potentially all equal and their essence derived not from the specific communities in which they Mm -hmm. they lived, but because they were humans all created by God. 
And that was a, a potentially a revolutionary step. I think what's related to that as well, which is also a bit of a sort of interesting dichotomy, is we talked about, you know, in the ancient Greek world about fate, about the central point of fate, and we, and we sort of tend to think that this was a move away from that and, and a move towards, again, I know we said it, responsibility was important, but I sort of think come to this idea of personal responsibility for our, our behaviour. But of course, the central to Christianity is the fallen nature of man. You know, we're all born into original sin, which seems like it's just again it's this it's this idea of fate you know why would a person behave themselves if actually there wasn't a great deal they could do about it anyway that's the other side of the way monotheists saw humans you know on the one hand they made humans greater than they were before mm-hmm. but in this sense the sense you're talking about humans were much smaller weaker creatures than than the greeks had seen them, than the chinese saw them for instance central to christianity and to monotheism is a notion of free will but free will within the Christian or monotheistic traditions is always circumscribed because ultimately only God has free will. It's important to, to recognise that this notion of the omnipotent God that, who's constrained by nothing, who's able to do as he pleases, mm-hmm. is important in developing the idea of free will because prior to that, the gods themselves were framed, were constrained by the structure of reality, by the fates, mm-hmm. whereas that no longer is the case. And therefore, God has unlimited agency. And that notion of unlimited agency also transforms the idea of human agency and therefore the notion of free will changes within the monotheistic faith. But at the same time, monotheists and Christians in particular come to see humans as incapable of being good, of doing good on their own Mm -hmm. in the way that the Greeks had seen humans as being able to. And this is particularly strong in in the Christian tradition because, as you say, of the notion of the fall, Mm -hmm. that Adam and Eve's disobedience of God in the Garden of Eden, in eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, had tainted humanity for the rest of their days, Mm -hmm. that they had been deprived of true free will, of their capacity to act on their own account to be good, that their willpower had become degraded, and only through the grace of God could humans become good. Whereas previously, the Greeks, the Chinese and so on, had seen humans as beings who could rationally work out right and wrong. In the monotheistic traditions, right and wrong comes from God. And that humans are incapable, because they are weak and flawed and corrupt creatures, of on their own achieving goodness, Mm -hmm. but only being able to do so through God's grace. And it seems to me, you know, the, the doctrine of original sin is perhaps the most profound contribution that Christianity makes to, in inverted commas, the Western tradition. Mm -hmm. But it's also perhaps the the bleakest and most pernicious, Mm -hmm. the idea of humans as fallen creatures, incapable of achieving good on their own. A very bleak view of human nature that doesn't become challenged properly until after the Renaissance, until the Enlightenment.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Kenan Malik, and we're talking about his book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, A Global History of Ethics. And we left off in that first part, Kenan, just as the uh, the Enlightenment was about to happen, something that we've obviously, uh, we're both <laughs> rather big fans of, as it happened. It's been a while since I've talked about the Enlightenment on this radio show that originally started out being about the Enlightenment. I want to start us off in this second part talking about there's, there's a change that happens... I mean, it's the Enlightenment that I think causes this to happen, but also there's there's just... I guess societies are getting bigger. There's more people, more people having to live together. And there's a change in the way we think of morality that, again, goes back to that Greek idea of the, the best way to live. But specifically, it becomes political. It becomes what we would now recognise, I guess, as you know, the abolition of slavery, feminism, sexual freedom, sort of political movements to give more and more people rights, workers' rights, etc. So let's talk about when those, when that idea first started to gain currency. When did we go from an idea of morality again being not just the way that we behaved to our God, but to our fellow man? Well, a key shift is between pre-modernity and modernity. Now, these are both contested terms, mm-hmm. of course, and what we mean by modernity and what we mean by pre-modernity and where the difference is and what the difference is, is you know, it's, it's highly contested. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, you know, we can all recognise that a certain shift takes place over a matter of three, four, five centuries mm-hmm. in Europe between around, I suppose, the 13th, 14th centuries and the 18th centuries. A shift in which a number of major changes happens, which are important for the way we think about morality. Mm -hmm. One is that the idea of morality being invested in God becomes less plausible. It's not simply that people become less devout, less religious. It is also that even religious thinkers are often less willing to look to God to set the boundaries of moral thought. Immanuel Kant is a very good example, who who is a devout Christian, and yet his philosophies, his notions of moral boundaries, rely very little on God. So that's one change that Mm -hmm. takes place. A second change is that individual autonomy becomes much more important. Mm -hmm. In the pre-modern world, the rights, the duties, the being of an individual was bound up to a large degree... Um, with a community in which he or she lived. And that community defined his or her rights and duties and obligations Mm -hmm. and so on. Whereas the notion of the individual as an actor in his his or her own right becomes much more important Mm -hmm. in this period. And it keeps developing, of course, right up to today. But the notion of individuality changes. And therefore the notion of individual conscience, Mm -hmm. of morality as an individual issue, becomes much more important. And thirdly, the notion of a community, a society as a given, changes. In the pre-modern world, societies were given in the sense that they were seen, the structures of communities, structures of societies were seen as fixed. Societies changed, of course. Mm -hmm. The the society in which Homer wrote was very different from the one in which Aristotle Mm -hmm. taught. But few people imagined that you could will social change. People had different, uh, certainly concepts of different kinds of society. In Plato's Republic, he sets up five different mm-hmm. notions of, of what societies could be like and, and ranks them and, and, and defines them according to whether they're good or bad. But what those are are like templates yeah. for different kinds of societies. They're not contingent forms that, that we can create ourselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the coming of modernity, the idea of 
the good society becomes contested, politically contested, and it becomes physically contested too, so that liberals and conservatives, socialists and communists, republicans and, and monarchists, all contest their idea of what the good society is. And therefore, the notion of ought what one ought to be, how society mm-hmm. ought to be, becomes as much a political as a moral issue. Mm-hmm. The notion of human flourishing becomes defined as much by how we can transform society as by how society is. And then morality becomes part of the project then of social transformation, mm-hmm. a huge change. So that, in a sense, you, you can, I suppose you can understand it this way. In the pre-modern world, morality and politics were inextricably linked because there was a sense that society could not be changed and was was fixed. In the modern world, morality and politics are inextricably linked, but for the opposite reason, because people recognise that societies could be changed and should be changed, and therefore morality became part and parcel of the project of social and political transformation. Mm -hmm. I want to get us on to, I want to spend, I guess, more time, we've spent enough time over the years talking about the Enlightenment and another thing that's you know has been an interest of both of our projects over the years has been the anti-Enlightenment you know the anti-modernity and uh, and the idea of there's this point where modernity is going and and the Enlightenment has happened and social change is happening you know the literacy and the industrialization of the west and then you know darwinism and all of these things are going on and it seems like reason is in the ascendance all along and then we'll get to well i guess we could talk about nietzsche for a bit because there's this point where nietzsche both announces the death of god as if and that seems to suggest that reason has won but he's also the arch the classic anti-rationalist he's anti-modernity so what happened why are those two sort of ideas that that seems like contrasting ideas i think you need to backtrack a bit because Mm. i would argue that what is fundamentally new different and significant about modernity and the enlightenment in particular Mm -hmm. is not the new stress on reason though that is very important but actually new stress on the human and on human agency that humans are the ones sure that define and decide what is good and bad. Humans infuse the world with meaning, as Diderot put it, that without humans there would be no meaning in the world. And that is an enormously new step. It's significantly different. It's that notion of humans as being the bearers of right and wrong, as being the definers Mm -hmm. of right and wrong and of meaning, that to me runs right through the Enlightenment. But it's a a very difficult step to take, Mm -hmm. because what it's saying, it's not simply that that humans define right and wrong without any help from beyond, without any help from God or from nature or or, or from anything else, but that, in a sense, there is no moral safety net, Mm -hmm. that we can't rely on anybody else. The point about God is that God is a moral safety net. God acts as a kind of fallback to make up for our weaknesses, our flaws, our inabilities to think clearly, mm-hmm. you know, which we all accept we, we possess. But God acts as a kind of moral safety net. And what the Enlightenment suggests, or certain strands of the Enlightenment, again, it's, it's important to recognise that there were many strands of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and that there were many strands of the Enlightenment that were that st- still strongly believed in the notion of God, in the notion of the divine, mm-hmm. and so on. But there was also those strands, particularly in, in the radical Enlightenment, that rejected that, 
And in rejecting that, accepted a much more radical view, not just of the relationship between, uh, between humans and God, but also a radical view of morality mm-hmm. and of society. It is out of the radical enlightenment that you know, modern notions of equality mm-hmm. comes. Because if one has to vest morality in something, but one can't vest it in God, because one no longer believes in God, what does a morality rest on? Mm-hmm. And it rests for the radicals, on the idea of human equality. Mm-hmm. It is out of human equality that their concept of morality arises. And therefore, that notion of, the radical notion of, of what it is to be human creates not only a radical notion of humanity's relationship with God, but also of a radical notion of uh, what morality is and what the good life is, mm-hmm. in a way that the more conservative strands of the Enlightenment could not accept. And what changes is our view of what it is to be human. See, when we talk about the death of God, you raise the notion of the death of yeah. God. The death of God actually embodies two ideas. One is disbelief in God. The other is belief in humans to act in God's place, if you yeah. like, to be able to act without God's guidance. Because the kind of changes that we've talked about that come with modernity and with the Enlightenment might have rested in part on the crumbling of you know, what you might call the God-ordained order. Mm. But it also depended on a, on a faith, but a faith of a different kind, faith in humans to be able to act without guidance from beyond. And it's that faith that begins to crumble through the 19th and the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And the importance of Nietzsche, the significance of Nietzsche, is that in him is embodied both the critique of God and the critique of reason. That in him is embodied both the idea of God being necessary for human action and and human life, and the idea that humans could, through reason, Mm -hmm. create a better world. So the end of the 19th century, we see both the crisis of faith and the crisis of reason, Mm -hmm. trends that become much more apparent through the 20th century. Yeah, and we can, we can see the, you know, the various wars and ideologies and genocides of, of the 20th century as, you know, glibly as definite <laughs> examples of that, that idea of, of the death of God. But at the same time, something that came out of the Enlightenment that really grows to preeminence in the 20th century is science. And the idea of science as almost like a new thing that we can use to look at questions of morality through. We talked about the Greeks. You mentioned him a couple of times, but I've sort of deliberately stayed away from Plato because earlier in this show, there's, listeners will have heard another interview that I did with Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein where we talk entirely about Plato. But we also talked about this idea that's just happened where a number of um, a number of physicists have basically said that you know that, that what's the point of philosophy anymore because basically physics can tell us all we need to know about morality. And I just wanted to talk about this idea, which I mean I think it's it's often dismissively described as scientism. And obviously I'm someone who's a, you know, a, a massive fan of science and modernity, as, as I know you are yourself, Kellen, but this idea that science can replace moral philosophy, it's, it's, it's a fatuous idea. Isn't it? Well, the first thing I think to say is that the very notion that science can tell us everything, mm-hmm. including what values we need to pursue, is itself a philosophical idea. Mm-hmm. It's a philosophical concept. And therefore, you can't escape philosophy in that sense. It is to take a particular philosophical view of what values are, Mm -hmm. of what science is, Mm -hmm. of what humans are, and so on. But the problem with it, I think, is that it's clear that values 
are in some way linked to facts about the world and facts about ourselves. I mean, they don't just fall from the sky. Mm -hmm. They are related to the kinds of creatures that we are and the kind world in which we live. At the same time, though, values cannot be simply collapsed into facts about the world. This is one of the, you know, one of the arguments that those who look to science to set moral boundaries. One of the arguments they make is that values are really like facts about the world, and therefore they can be studied and defined by science in the way that other facts about the world. Mm -hmm. But values aren't facts about the world. Values are judgments upon facts about the world. And while they are related to facts about the world, they are also distinct from the facts about the world. And what links values and facts are actually human beings. Mm -hmm. It's our ability to make judgments, to act morally, that links the two, and it's important to recognise that. And science can tell us all the, you know, we can get lots of data, you know, we can study things, we can come up with lots of facts and figures, but we've still got to have a, there's still got to be people sitting around having a conversation of what actually constitutes a good life to measure those that sort of data against. Indeed, I mean, facts always have to be interpreted yeah. with, within a framework. And if you read Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape, mm-hmm. where he makes the argument for the importance of science to setting moral boundaries, for instance, and for defining, deciding moral disagreement, one of the arguments he makes is that we may develop into a society where we're able to have lie detectors everywhere and therefore be able to uh, look at people's thoughts and, and be able to determine whether they're lying in courtrooms or, or, or in public spaces. And therefore, this can help us create a more moral world. But of course, whether you think that's a good idea or not, is not a scientific claim. It is a moral claim. Mm -hmm. I happen to think it's a terrible idea. (laughs) Nobody would want to live in that world, Exactly. (laughs) And therefore, you can make a a plausible argument that that in time we may well have Mm -hmm. the scientific ability to be able to tell whether people are lying or not. How we use that and where we use that and how that relates to the notion of morality is not a scientific question. It's a philosophical, moral question. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to to finish off just talking very briefly, speculating about where, you know, the direction you think morality, our ideas of morality and our ways of interpreting it are going to go in the future. I mean, it's interesting you just raised that idea of Sam Harris, but I was going to say there's something, there's a thing going on at the moment, the last few years, with like social media, where there is this sort of almost, what's the word, sort of panopticon type, sort of like tone policing of like every, almost uh, lie detectors everywhere of of people policing other people's behaviour for right or wrong in this social media thing and it seems to i mean there's every time there's another example it seems to be more extreme than the last one is that where we're going are we gonna are we going to have this world of lie detectors well i think there are two shifts changes that are important in what you're talking about the first is the erosion of the distinction between the public and the private Mm -hmm. We often think about social media as having brought about that erosion of, 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 the, of that distinction. I think it was a develop- there's been a development that's been coming a long time and that social media has just become an expression, mm-hmm. the way we use social media, of the erosion of that distinction. And I think it's a very dangerous distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a d- very dangerous development. The distinction between the public and the private, mm-hmm. the existence of a private sphere separate from everyone else into which others don't have access... I think it's hugely important. Mm-hmm. And I do think the loss of that distinction is very troubling. The other shift that's taken place is the idea that there are certain things that can't be said because they are offensive, mm-hmm. because they are uh, 
that go beyond certain lines. And we all often think about this in terms of religion. That, that it's often uh, the religious who say there are certain things that can't be said and so mm-hmm. on. But as it happens, liberals do too. There are a kind of liberal line and people who cross those lines are deemed unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And I do think both those shifts are, are, are hugely dangerous. And they're dangerous for our, for our moral life because mm-hmm. moral life depends on our ability to have conversations, open, unregulated conversations. In a sense, morality is about conversations that takes place across time and across space, a constant uh, set of conversations. And the more you police that, the more you restrict that, the more you erode our moral lines. That's a good point for us to finish on. So I've been talking to Ken and Malik. We've been talking about his book, The Quest for a Moral Compass, A Global History of Ethics, which is out now. It's been out a while from Atlantic Books. Kenan, thank you very much for joining me again on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.